the book of Acts tells the story of how God turned the world upside down through the earliest Christians and churches as they proclaimed God's word and the power of the Spirit. These followers of Jesus not only served one another, they served the world. In this message from the book of Acts, David Platt reminds us that with the gospel as our foundation and motivation, followers of Christ today should live to make disciples and multiply churches to the glory of God. Just as it was for the early disciples, the cost will be great, but the reward is more than worth it. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, Disciple Making, Serve the World. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 17. That's where we're going we're gonna to start tonight. In the beginning of this year, we started a fast-paced journey through the book of Acts that we come to a conclusion to tonight. We've seen the gospel go from a small group of 120 people and spread throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, literally on the way to the ends of the earth. We've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of people saved. We've seen churches multiplied throughout the known world. This, this, this is an amazing story, isn't it? And this is not, what we've been reading is not fiction, this is real. Stories, literally, of thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. And churches being multiplied throughout the known world. And what's really exciting is when you realize this story doesn't have a conclusion. And that this story is intended to be our story. Because it's not, it's not just the book of Acts. It's, it's the church today. It's... India. I shared a few stories from India a couple of weeks ago. I'll give you one more. Deepak, a pastor of a small house church in India. And this small church meeting in a home, they, they get it. They understand. They realize that all of them are, it's this basic. They realize they're all supposed to make disciples. And so they, they start making disciples. And this one church has now multiplied into 93 different churches. Now, along the way, one, one of these new believers, disciple makers, goes into a village where there's, there's no gospel, no church, and goes into this village, meets a woman named Conti at a well. It's John 4. This woman at a well who is a part of the Musahara people group. A little bit about the Musahara. The Musahara are an untouchable people group. That's the word that's used in India to describe the lowest caste of people. The people that you just don't get near. That you don't rub shoulders with. The Musahara, if you're born into the Musahara people group, you're born a servant. From the day you're born, you belong to an owner. To do grunge jobs, cleaning out toilets and such. The Musahara are not even allowed to live in the same village as their owners. They need to live in a separate village by themselves so that their owners won't have to rub shoulders with them. And so Kanti, a woman from the Musahara, she's getting water from a well. One of these disciple makers, followers of Christ, comes up to her, shares the gospel. She believes in Christ, receives the gospel, is saved. She goes back to her separate village just for the Musahar. She shares the gospel. There's 70 of them. All 70 of them believe. All of them. Everyone who's of age able to believe on Christ, they all believe. And then, story doesn't end there. Their owner decides to send this group of 70 Musahar to another area for a bigger job that needed to be worked on where there's 190 Musahar and they need more. And so the owner, coincidentally, happens to send these Musahar to a group of 190. None of them have ever heard the gospel. So these 70 get there, start sharing the gospel. All 190 of them come to faith in Christ. This gospel's good. It was good in Acts and it's good today. Story of Acts, story of today. I, I, I read... I read this, and, and I look at that in India, and then I'm just, I'm, 
I'm confronted with the question. I want to ask the question, can that happen here? I'm jealous, I'm zealous to see that happen here. And so, here's, here's what I want to do. As we bring this picture to a conclusion, I want to warn you that what I'm going to leave you with tonight may, may result in more questions than answers. This is the way God has, has worked among us, especially over the last four or five years. We, we've not really necessarily set out to do anything we've ended up doing. The Word has, has done that work among us. As we've studied the Word, God has brought about His work. We never set out to say, we're going to do a big foster care initiative. Instead, we studied James, and James said, you need to care for orphans, and that led to what is happening really all over the city right now when it comes to foster care. We never set out and said, okay, well, let's, let's do a radical campaign and I have a little orange book that goes along with it. This will be really great. No, what we did was we, we studied the Word and, and that was just the fruit of the Word among us, this journey that we have been on. And so I, I, I sense the Lord leading us to study for the first few months of 2011 this book, the book of Acts to set the stage for I'm not sure exactly what in the days to come. And I want to make that clear. I don't want you to think this like bait and switch. I got like a plan up the sleeve that I'm going to bring out later and I'm just setting you up. But what I want to do is I want, I want to leave you with three foundational conclusions from our time in the book of Acts that I want us to pray together to the Lord and say, how, how is that going to affect us as a church going forward? Because I think that the potential is huge but, but I, I want to put those foundations before you tonight. Under the banner of, you see at the top of your notes, uh, thinking about the church that turns the world upside down. And immediately that sounds idealistic to you. I know that. I know some of you are rolling your eyes. The church that turns the world upside down. But it's, it's not idealistic. Like, don't roll your eyes. I want, to, I want to show you why that's not idealistic. And here's how we're going to do this. As we close out the book of Acts, we're going to hone in on one church. Church at Thessalonica. This church that I think in many ways most clearly portrays, illustrates, displays what we've been talking about the last four weeks, especially when it comes to disciple making and the whole picture that we're seeing in the book of Acts. I want us to hone in on on this church. I want us to read Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through 9, which reminds us, we've already read this, we're going to read it again and be reminded of how the church at Thessalonica was started. And then we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we're going to read what Paul wrote to this church. And in that, we're going to get a glimpse, a deeper glimpse of what was happening in Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through 9. And what happened as a result of Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through 9. And I want you to see a picture of not idealistic reality that turned the world upside down. You know what's really cool? Uh, this, this Friday at, at Secret Church Simulcast, there is a group of believers in Thessalonica that's going to be a part of Secret Church Simulcast. <laughs> I can't wait to say, to the Church of God in Thessalonica, we bring you greetings from... <laughs> it's awesome. So anyway, all right. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. This is how the church was started. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews... And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, here it is, verse 6, so we don't have to roll our eyes anymore, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Okay, so that's, that's how the church was started. Now, take a ride in your New Testament and go to 1 Thessalonians, Paul's first letter to this church. What happens is, Paul 
doesn't stay there in Thessalonica long. He moves on. And then he sends Timothy back to check on the church at Thessalonica. Timothy goes, checks on them, spends time with them, and comes back to Paul with a report of how they're doing. And Paul, once he receives that report, writes this letter to them. And in this letter, what I want to do is I want us to read this letter. Paul, with Timothy and Silas, write this letter to the church of the Thessalonians. What I want us to see is a glimpse into what was happening in what we just read, Acts chapter 17, in Paul's time there, and then the fruit of what was happening there. So start in, in verse 2. This is what Paul, with Ty, uh, Timothy and Silas, writes to the church at Thessalonica. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Okay, based on this picture, the church at Thessalonica, I want to to put before us as the church at Brook Hills, three foundational realities. I want to leave us with these at the end of this journey through Acts. And my prayer is that they would, they would not leave us, that these would drive us, these foundational realities. Number one, church at Brook Hills, we exist to exalt the glory of God. We exist to exalt. We are not here for ourselves. We are here for a king and for the advancement of a kingdom. That's, that's at the very core. We exist. Our being. We have breath for this one thing. For the glory of God. Now I want to stay here in First Thessalonians chapter 1. And follow with me. We're going to fly through some of this. But I want you to see why it's a good thing that we have breath for the glory of God. Because, first, the gospel is our foundation. The gospel of God is our foundation. This is what was preached in Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus who died, who was raised from the dead, he is the Christ. That was Paul's message. The gospel. That Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. He's risen from the grave in victory over sins. He is Christ, Messiah, King it's what they were accused of doing, saying, there's another king. Yes, there's another king. His name is, is Jesus. And what Paul does in these opening verses in 1 Thessalonians is he recounts, recounts in a stunning, beautiful way the application of the gospel to the church in Thessalonica. Follow this. Because what he is saying to them here applies to us in this room. We Follow this. We have been chosen by the Father. Paul says to them in verse 4, We know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. He has chosen you. I'm not trying to promote a theological agenda here. Just trying to read a biblical text. Paul says to these guys, it's clear that the God of the universe has poured out his grace on you. And say to us, every follower of Christ in this room, to think that the God of the universe in his gracious initiative has reached down into your life, called your name. Not, not because your resume was shiny, and appealing. Early, earlier this spring, we, uh, Heather and I were signing up Caleb for T-ball. And I wanted to, I wanted to coach Caleb in T-ball. 
And so there's an application you have to fill out, like a resume, to coach T-ball. just want to coach T-ball. And this application has all these questions. How many years have you coached? He's five. I haven't coached any years. Like, I don't have experience in coaching. And I ask all these different questions. How many times have you played fall ball? I didn't know there was fall ball. How many times have you done this? And I, I had nothing to write down. I was, I was sweating, trying to fill out this application. Heather was looking at me like she's, she said, I've never seen you struggle with an application like this. Clearly, you have nothing to write down. And that was true. I had nothing to write down. There was nothing. I, I had nothing. I'm trying to make up stuff. With integrity, of course, but make up stuff. <laughs> I had nothing. And so I, I submitted, and then, then I get a call, and voice on our line says, congratulations, you are going to be the coach of the Pirates. And so I am the coach of the Pirates. Not because of anything I brought to the table, but because of the gracious initiative of Oak Mountain Youth Baseball League. Oh, so on a... On a so, So take it to a much, much deeper, deeper, obviously, grander level. To think there's nothing in you to draw God to you. Everything on your resume screams out, don't pick me. Everything on your resume screams out, I'm not picking you. And I don't want you. I want to run from you. And God, in his mercy, reaches down and says, you you are mine. And you, we, followers of Christ, we, we have been chosen by the Father. Could we not stop here and just sing for the next few hours? And, yes, but we've got a long way to go, so, so we're going to keep going. Second, we've been crucified with the Son. So here's, here's what I'm, I'm hitting at here. You saw in Acts 17 that when they heard the gospel, they received the word. I think it's verse 6 says, they received the word with much affliction. It was... It was persecution happening in Thessalonica. It was not easy to come to Christ in Thessalonica. They were identifying with a crucified Christ, and they were, in a sense, being crucified for it, being persecuted for it. They were not following Christ out of self-preservation. They were following Christ in self-denial. And, and this, is, this is key. In this room, though it's easier to be a follower of Christ in Birmingham than in Thessalonica in many, many ways, to realize that, we have lost our lives. We no longer live. Christ lives in us. We've been crucified with Christ. And so this is foundational, right? We, we don't determine the direction of our lives and we don't determine the direction of the church. We've been crucified with the Son. Third, we've been changed by the Spirit. Our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This is what's happened in our lives, their lives, our lives. God has been so gracious to us in this room. And so, so we talk all the time about making disciples and going to the nations. Not because we feel guilty. Not because well, we have to, so let's do it. No, we talk about these things all the time because this is the overflow of grace and the gospel in us. When you receive this kind of mercy, you want the, war, the world to know this kind of mercy. When you receive grace like this, you want to proclaim this grace to the ends of the earth. It's gospel, foundation. And dri- driving us, the gospel is our motivation. Our motivation. You look at verse 3, you see three phrases back to back to back that show the fruit of the gospel in the Thessalonians. And as I was looking through it, clearly illustrate the fruit of the gospel in, in your life. Our life is a church. So look at verse 3. It says, Remembering before our God and Father, here's the three phrases. Your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. So there it is. Work of faith, number one. Number two, labor of love. And number three, steadfastness of hope. So see how the gospel was driving them and, and us. So this is review, but it's important. Our faith is producing work. Right? Work flows from faith. Faith works. We've seen that. We saw, we walked through James. We see faith works. Now we, we need to make sure we always come back to this reality. We have been saved from work, meaning work that is fueled by the flesh that does not honor God. We've been saved from that kind of work. We don't, we don't do what we do. We don't, we don't read the Bible. We don't pray. We don't worship. We don't move to East Lake Gate City. We don't, 
don't share the gospel. We don't move into difficult contexts in the world because we're trying to earn favor before God or be accepted before God. That's taken care of. There's nothing we can do. We're resting in the righteousness of Christ. We've been saved from that kind of work. He, he, he is our righteousness. And what he has done is more than sufficient for me to be accepted by God. You to be accepted by God. So we're free from any kind of work to try to be accepted before God. Free from that kind of work. But that doesn't mean we're just sitting back doing nothing then. We're working because we've been saved to work. The kind of work that is fueled by faith that brings great glory to God. Faith fuels work. Not flesh. We don't want flesh-fueled work. We want faith-fueled work. When you believe this gospel, when you believe that God has sent His Son, Jesus, to die for our sins, to save us from ourselves, to save us from eternal damnation, and all who trust in Him will be reconciled to God forever, you believe that, you live your life with zeal to make that known in the world. And we're not just playing games here, Right? Not just religious routine for us. It's the last thing we're doing here tonight. We believe this, and it incites affectionate worship of God, and bold witness for God. That's faith-fueled work. And so that's, we got, our faith is producing work. Our love is producing labor, labor of love. Love's foundation. Love's foundation. Love for God, love for neighbor, love for one another, love for enemies. Why, why are, are some people from our midst over the last year, why have they moved down to one of the more dangerous areas of our city? Why have some people that used to sit among us now moved into some of the most dangerous contexts in the world for a Christian to live? Why? Because of love. Love is the foundation that produces that kind of labor. And, and along the way, it's not easy. Hope is producing endurance. It's what Paul says, a steadfastness of hope. The gospel is what fuels. So it's foundation, motivation, and the gospel is our ambition. More than anything, more than our own lives, we want this gospel to be known all over the globe. This is, this is it. More than anything, more than our own lives, we want this gospel to be made known all over the globe. We want what was said of the church of Thessalonica to be said about us, that the word sounded forth from us everywhere. We want the gospel made known all over the globe because, second, we want our Savior to come back for his people. And we know that he's coming back when the word has gone out to all the globe. 20, Matthew 24, 14, we talk about a good bit. This gospel will be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. Christ, our Savior, our King, is coming back. And He's coming back when the Word is made known among all nations. So we're giving ourselves to making the Word known in all nations, because, in part because we want to see our King. We're looking forward to His coming. You look at 1 Thessalonians, every single chapter in this book ends with a reference to the second coming of Christ. It's beautiful. Let me, let me show it to you real quick. Verse 10, you might just underline it. At the end of every chapter, he ends... Verse, chapter 1 says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're waiting for a son to come from heaven. You get to end of chapter 2, verse 19. We're going to come back to this verse later. But chapter 2, verse 19 says, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? End of chapter 3. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Chapter 4. Oh, not just one verse. Start in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So they're like, amen, at least under the surface in the room when you hear that. We're going to meet the Lord in the air and be with the Lord always. Encourage one another with these words. Those are encouraging words. He's coming back. You get to chapter 5, verse 23. 
May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your Holy, whole spirit and soul and body keep, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We're waiting on a son from heaven. That word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse, verse 10, is it's a word that describes an expectant anticipation. Our eyes are on the sky, brothers and sisters, and we are living for the day when we'll see his face. We want our Savior to come back for his people. So all this gospel drives us, foundation, motivation, ambition. And because of the gospel in our hearts, we we know we exist for one thing. It supersedes all things. We exist to exalt the glory of our God. It's what, it's what we want to spend our lives doing. So how do we do that? That leads to second foundation. We live to make disciples. We live to make disciples. So this is where we have been honing in on focusing in the last four weeks. And the reality that I, I, I pray would continually pervade our hearts and minds in this church. We are a fellowship of disciple makers, not an audience of spectators. We're a fellowship of disciple makers, not an audience of spectators. This, that, that is so tough to say in a room like this. And I think it's tough to believe in a room like this. To really believe that. And there's, there's a lot of you sitting out there listening to one of me. And, you, and besides me, you see every, the back of everybody else's heads. It certainly feels like a spectator, doesn't it? It's, 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 it's tough to hear this and believe. I, I could wish for a, a smaller environment to sit down where I could look into each of your eyes and, and say you were created and you're saved to make disciples. You were. And for that, that really to soak in, to hear you, hear you say, I, I don't know. What does that mean? I, I've got so many things Things. To hear you say, I've got so many things I need to work on in my life. I've got so many things I need to get right. Like I know that maybe it means others, but I, I just don't know if that means me. And for, for me to look at you in the eye and say, remember, remember Punja? She came to Christ one afternoon. She came to Christ, and a week later, 24 people were in her home, and she's sharing the gospel with them. And a week after that, seven of them have come to Christ and a new church has started in her home. So, so you have in you what it takes to start a church in a couple weeks. I just to say that, for you to believe it. Like, why not believe that? Same spirit, same word, same gospel. To believe this. Anybody, every believer can do this, must do this, that God has put his spirit in us for this, for this. So, so let's share the word so that others will receive it. Now this is where I want to recap what we've been talking about in the last four weeks. Summarizing disciple making, sharing the word. We share the gospel so that others will receive it. And I want you to see this. It's where 1 Thessalonians 1 just comes alive. It brings to light all that we've been talking about with disciple-making. So maybe you're not bought into this picture of disciple-making, share the word, show the word, teach the word, serve the world. Well, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 5, he says, Our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That's where it all started, sharing the gospel. You get down to chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, though we had already suffered, been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such much conflict. We had boldness to share the gospel with you. You get to chapter 2, verse 9. 
Look at verse 9. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work day, night and day that we not, might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as, it, what, it, as what it really is, the word of God. This is the picture. They came sharing the gospel. So this is what we do. It's what all of us do. We share the gospel. This is how the gospel advances through all of us sharing the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit. And they will receive it. They will receive it. Now, I know some, some people in your life you try to share the gospel have not received it. But don't let that destroy your confidence in this gospel. People will receive it. This gospel is good. Share it. They'll receive it. And we, we must keep this front and center in our midst. Especially as we talk about urgent spiritual and physical need in the world. As we give ourselves to ministry among urgent physical need, people who, who are starving, people who are, are in deep suffering physically, we need to make sure to always remember that as we give them bread, we need to give them the gospel. And it's always easier to give them bread than it is to give them the gospel. And you look in the history of the church, there is always a propensity in caring for physical needs to leave gospel behind. We've got to make sure not to leave gospel behind. We've said it before, that Satan, in a sense, would be just fine with us clothing people on their way to hell. So we don't, we don't want to do that. Missed the whole point. So let's, let's share the gospel. So others receive it. And let's show the word so that others will follow it. Oh, this word gets really good. He says at the end of verse 5, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So we proved to be people who are living out the gospel in front of you, and then you began to follow us. You began to imitate us. You go over to chapter 2, verse 8. Listen to this. This is a great verse. Chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, being affectionately desirous of you, hear this, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you'd become very dear to us. You see it? Share gospel, share life. You get down a couple more verses in verse 10. It says, you were witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. This is Paul saying, you heard the gospel from us and you saw the gospel, the word of God alive in us. That was so key. Here's an idolatrous people in Acts chapter 17. Thessalonica, idolatrous paganism. Haven't heard the gospel. And the gospel comes to them. How are they going to know how to follow Christ? They hear about Christ. They believe on Christ. How are they going to know how to follow Christ? They needed Paul to show the word. To bring that front and center in front of them. This is what the Christ life looks like. This is what we do. That's why when, when you lead somebody to Christ, the last thing I would say to you is, okay, well, get that new Christian, that new believer, get them in some kind of class, Bible class, really quick. It's not that Bible class would necessarily be bad. But what they need is to see the gospel and the word of Christ alive in you. How's that new believer going to learn to pray? You can stick them in a class on prayer. That'll go so far. But it'll be far more valuable for you to invite that new believer into your quiet time. Where you say, here's how I pray. Let's pray together. And I want to show you how I keep my, my mind's attention on God. How I lift my heart's affections toward God. Here's how I pray intentionally and concentrated time with the Lord. Here's how that fuels continual time in prayer with God. How's that new believer going to learn to read and study this word? Stick him in a class or stick him, even, I mean, bring him in here. It's not, that's bad, not bad at all. But that believer, new believer is going to know how to study and read the word. When you invite them into your quiet time, you open up the word and here's, say, I want to show you how I study God's word. I want to show you how I read. I want to show you the questions I ask to understand what's going on in the Word. 
And to this point, people say, well, ah, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I'd be ready to do that. And that's where we realize, remember, God has this whole thing designed not just for others' sanctification, for others' growth in Christ, but for our own sanctification, for our own growth in Christ. Because if you're going to be teaching somebody else, showing somebody else how to study the Bible, you've got to know how to do what? Study the Bible. And now, all of a sudden, your Christianity is about to go to new heights that it's never been before. Because others are dependent on you for their growth in Christ. You are a sanctifying influence in my life. Because you force me every week into this word and into prayer. And when you have people in your life that you're showing how to follow Christ, they become, you're helping them to grow in Christ, and what happens is they, unbeknownst to them even, begin to help you to follow Christ. I'm convinced every Christian in this room, every Christian anywhere, will plateau in our spiritual growth, will hit a ceiling until you give yourself to disciple-making. If it's all just about you and your own growth in Christ, ceiling. But when others are dependent on you for your growth in Christ, this is where you start to go to whole new heights. Because you're sharing life with others, showing what this looks like to others. And this is where we realize, don't miss this, your notes there, biblical community and biblical mission are inseparable. Biblical community, biblical mission are inseparable. And all this talk about disciple making, some people start to think, well, we got, I get so focused on disciple making, we don't, we don't care for each other. No way. Not if we're doing biblical disciple making. Because biblical disciple making is caring for each other. It is experiencing community with each other. It's sharing life with each other. This is why whenever we take discipleship and limit it to an hour, hour and a half class once a week, we've missed the whole point from the start. We've got to share life with each other. Walk through life together. In the context of life, see the word in action. And when that's happening, then we experience the depth of community and mission in one. You ask anybody in this room who's gone on a short-term mission trip, you ask them, if they've gone on a short-term mission trip with other people, if they experience community with those other people in the context of that trip, they will respond and say they experience community in ways they, they might not have even wanted to experience community. Because when you're on the front lines of mission together, you, you're locking arms with the people around you. And you need the people around you in a way that you don't need them when you're lounging at the pool. When you're on the front lines of mission together, you, you, you're, in the, you're in the bunker together. You, you need each other. And that's the whole design. Disciple man, biblical community, biblical mission, inseparable. We were talking with a, one pastor in India. He was sharing with us about a, a couple in his, his church. Okay, they catch it. We are disciple makers. So they make a list of the people they know that they can share the gospel with, 50 or 60 people on their list. And they start going and sharing the gospel intentionally with those 50 or 60 people. They came back to their pastor. They said, we never knew what this would do for our marriage. They said, as we started sharing the gospel with these people, we realized that these people needed to see the love of Christ in our love for each other. It's the whole design of marriage, right? Ephesians 5, that our marriages would be a picture of the love of Christ for his church. What they found was, in the process of disciple-making, that they, again, go into new heights, that, that they needed to love one another. Yes, for the sake of loving one another, but for the sake of the spread of the gospel. God knows what he's doing when he tells us to make disciples. It is, it is good for others to make disciples, and it is good for us. It's good for us. Trust, trust the Lord on this one. So let's show the word to others so they will follow it. Let's teach the word to, so that others will spread it. In verse 6, Paul says, you receive the word. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, you receive the word. And then verse 8, listen to verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The great verse. Paul says, the word from you has sounded forth everywhere. Some translations say the word is spread abroad. Uh, some, Some translations say to every place, everywhere. Church turns the world upside down. Word Sounded forth everywhere. The word he uses there for sounded forth, only, only time he ever uses this word in a letter. It's a word that in, in that day would be used to describe a, 
a trumpet blast being declared so everyone could hear it. It's a word that would be used to describe how the, the sound of the rolling thunder. What a great image to, to picture how the word in this church, oh, God may it be so, in this church sounds forth everywhere. Trumpet blast going out from me. It's like when Paul was speaking to the Thessalonian Christians, he was speaking into a PA system. He speaks the word to them and the word not just being received, being reproduced from there. So the Paul says, I don't even have to say anything. Huh. And just be quiet. You've got the word covered in these, all, in these regions. You're making the word known. That's what we want. Oh, God, that we would echo the word like that. Let's teach the word so others will spread it. Share, show, teach the word, and let's serve the world so that together with others we will eventually reach the world, reach the nations with the gospel. Not only Macedonia, Achaia, your faith in God has been made known everywhere. Thessalonica was a base of ministry to the world. What they did in Thessalonica, don't miss it. This is the beauty of disciple making. What they did in Thessalonica, making disciples, reverberated to cities, provinces, around the world. That's, that's, what we're, that's what we're pressing in, praying for, right? That what we do as a church here would, would reverberate with the word and the gospel going forth everywhere. So we, we live to make disciples. That's, that's what happens when the church, when we all are making disciples. You've been saved to make disciples. And God lodged that in each one of our hearts. How that plays out, how share the word, show the word, teach the word, serve the word, how that plays out in each of our lives. Now that's, that's where we get into practical. Some of you are thinking, okay, but what does this look like? Dive into that with each other. Small groups. Dive into that. Say, how can we best do that in our lives where we live? Dive into that. God wants this mission to happen in your life more than you do. He will lead you, guide you to put that into practice. Abandon to that. How can I share the gospel best? How can I show the gospel best? How can I teach others the word? How can we together lock arms and serving the world, resounding gospel to the nations? We're not, we're not spectators. When that begins to take hold. Now, that leads to one more foundation that, to be honest, this is the foundation that has been most challenging and convicting for me as I've been reading through book of Acts. So we exist to exalt the glory of God, leading us to live to make disciples. Third foundation. We, we die to multiply churches. We die to multiply churches. You say, what, what do you mean by that? Here, here's what I mean by that. We, we started this series. If you'll remember, the first Sunday in Acts, you came in, there was, there was a, uh, if you were here, there was, there was a blank sheet of notes that you had. And we said, let's just imagine that it was just us, just people, no, no building, no programs, no, no stuff, just, just us people. People of God, the Spirit of God in us, the Word of God in front of us. And we've got a charge to make this gospel known to the ends of the earth. We've got a little bit of time to do it. Just a, a short time to do it before eternity comes. Get this gospel to the ends of the earth. If we had a blank check, blank slate, just us people, word of God, spirit of God, how would we go about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? We ask the question, would, would we would we pull together our resources and spend millions on, on buildings? We ask, would we organize all the programs that are very familiar to us that mostly cater around us. Would, would, we, would we do those things? Would that be our priority? And we said, maybe not, probably not. We'd, we'd scatter together. Scatter. We would need each other. We'd scatter throughout Birmingham to the ends of the earth, making this word known. If this is what our lives are about, we'd so what would we do if we had a blank check? So we asked that question. We said, okay, it doesn't mean buildings, programs, stuff, all the other things are bad, but we need to refocus and ask the question. We've got to ask the question. That's where I want to bring it back now. Not that, I, not that there's a bunch of answers on the table, but I want to bring it back to the blank check. 
Because with a blank check before the Lord, as a church, what we're saying is, God, we will, we will die to our comforts. We will die to our preferences. We will die to traditions. We will die to the way things have been done, the way we would like to see things done. We're going to die to all those things. How can we most effectively make this gospel known throughout Birmingham and to the ends of the earth? Whatever you say, we'll do it. Whatever you tell us to let go of, we'll let go of. Whatever you tell us to do differently, we'll do differently. Blank check, no strings attached. You tell us what to do. So that's, that's how we, that's what we dove into the book of Acts. So 15 weeks later, where, where are we? What, what conclusions have we come to? This is where I want, I want to put before you I don't, think, I don't think that Acts has given us exact answers for that, has prescribed exact answers for that. I don't think there's a way you can say, well, if we just do these, these, these things, check off these boxes, then we would be making the gospel known to the ends of the earth. But, but I do want to put before us uh, four, four things here that I think Acts has contributed to the conversation in. And again, don't have plan up the sleeve for what that means for us going forward. But I, I want to let the... Let these soak in and let this drive our praying from here on. Four, four things I want to point out. One, about these early Christians in Acts, their homes were central. Their homes were central. The normal place of meeting for these early Christians was clearly at, at home. Now, there were believers in Jerusalem that would meet at the temple, particularly at the time of prayer, but as persecution increased that became less and less possible. And certainly they would go to synagogues at different places in other cities, but it didn't take long for Paul to be in a synagogue before he got kicked out of the place. So synagogues weren't, weren't the best place to gather either. And you see him meeting at, at points in public halls, Hall of Tyrannus and Acts chapter 19, a couple other places like that. But what you see from the very beginning and throughout the rest of the New Testament is that homes were, were a central gathering place for Christians. From the very beginning, Acts chapter 1, gathered together in an upper room, chamber of Mary, mother of John Mark's house. Chapter 2, the church explodes. Verse 46 says they were meeting from house to house. Then, then you go on, and you begin to see in Acts and in these letters, you see all these different homes. You see, just list them, Philip's home in Caesarea, Philemon's house, Jason's house in Thessalonica, we read just a second ago, house of Titus, house, house of Stephanus, Lydia's house, house of a Philippian jailer, Nympha, Aquila, Priscilla, all these homes were strategic centers for the gathering of Christians. And, you, and, and what we've read through Acts, you never, you never see a church building. And, and it begs the question, why not? And, and we don't really know the answer to that question, to be fair. Like, we, don't, we don't know why not. Some people said, well, it's because they didn't have enough resources. And obviously the church had some resources, some wealthy members of the church, but maybe, maybe they didn't have enough resources. Maybe some, some places, maybe it wasn't possible because of the persecution they were experiences, experiencing. And, and yet there were also places that were more friendly to Christianity. No buildings there either. And so we don't know for sure, but it does make you wonder. Makes me wonder. Makes me wonder if they didn't think it would be necessary. As we look in in this book, to see a gospel that is so continually multiplying that they never thought it was necessary to build a building and they could get along fine just, with that, just fine without them. What more natural place for them to share the gospel with people they knew, to show the gospel to each other as a family, to teach the word in the context of relationships with each other, what more natural place to do that than in a home? And so... And so their, their homes were central, just plainly put. Second, their strategy was simple. Their strategy was simple. Now, my simple, I don't mean easy. I don't mean easy. We'll get, to, we'll get to that in a second. But I want you to think about it. Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas. They, they, I think it's verse 23. But they're, they're, they're making disciples, and then they form those disciples into a church, and then they appoint elders, pastors, and then they leave. And all they left behind were disciples, pastors, and, and the Word of God. Although they didn't even have the full Word, like we've got the Word. They had Old Testament, teaching of the apostles. They didn't have the full New Testament. We got the advantage on Paul and these early churches on this one. And they left. Ten years. 
Paul goes around doing this in these different places, making disciples. Church is planted, the pastor, then he leaves. He does this for 10 years. After 10 years of doing that, he concludes at the end of Romans, well, my work here is done. And that's all he done. He left behind people, pastors, word of God, spirit of God. And that was it. That's what I mean by simple. Roland Allen, um, early 20th century, 1920 or so, he had, he had uh, been orphaned early in life, went as a missionary from England to North China, and he began to write uh, a few different books that really rocked kind of the missions landscape. And, and one of the things he, he said, he said, he said, we cannot imagine any Christianity existing without all the elaborate machinery that we have invented. But Paul seems to have left his newly found churches with a simple system of gospel teaching, two sacraments, i.e. the Lord's Supper and Baptism, a tradition of the main facts of the death and resurrection, and the Old Testament. That's all. This seems to us remarkably little. We can hardly believe that a church could be founded on so slight a basis. We had so much. But, but, but do we need so much? If our goal is urgent, reproducible spread of the gospel. We want, we want thousands and thousands in Birmingham and to the ends of the earth to know the gospel. Clearly we won't be able to reproduce this whole picture here rapidly, urgently. But do we need to? Clearly, word, pastor, people, word, spirit. That was enough for Paul. It was enough for these early Christians. It's, it's enough for many of our brothers and sisters in the world I guess the question is, is that enough for us? You take everything else away. Are pastors, people, word, and spirit enough for us? The strategy was simple. Not easy. Because third, their cost was steep. And obviously, we we could dive into specifics here, but I think it's clear from cover to cover in this book that persecution and suffering abounded for these early followers of Christ. This was not a path of security and comfort. This was a path of suffering and cost. They, they didn't ask. Here, here's, here's the deal. They didn't ask from the very beginning. Their first question wasn't, what is best for me? And let's organize around that. Their first question was, what is best for the spread of the gospel? And they believed that was best for them. That's key. They didn't start with what's best for me. They started with what's best for the spread of the gospel. And they believed that was best for them. Because they believe that was best bring glory to God. And what's best for us is what brings glory to God. And so it was costly. You, you hear Paul say in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. My life is worth nothing to me. It counts for one thing. Our lives count for one thing. Testify to the gospel of God's grace. Cost was steep, but their reward was great. This is the last place I want to show you. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. We read it earlier. I want to bring back in here. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse, verse 19. Let's listen to this. Paul, Paul suffered. Paul was beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked. He went to Thessalonica, persecution, lashing out against him, stoned at different places. I mean, he suffered. Paul, was it worth what was the point, Paul? Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. He says, What is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. Did you hear that? What's your joy, Paul? What's the point? My joy, Paul says, my crown of boasting before Christ at his coming is people. People who've trusted in Christ as a result of suffering. People who've come to Christ, who are walking with Christ. You get down further in chapter 3, verse 6, it says, Timothy has come to us from you, has brought us good news of your faith and love, reported that you always remember us kindly, long to see us, and we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, listen to this, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. In all our suffering, we've been comforted. Why? Verse 8, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. He lived when he saw others standing fast in the Lord. That's what, that's what, oh, I pray that that's what would drive our lives. You, you know this in your kids' lives, right? Your parent 
see kids' lives, when you see your kid excel, your child thriving, you're living. To see that across the board. When you see people in Birmingham coming to Christ and walking with Christ, this is life. When you see people in the nations coming to Christ and walking with Christ, this is what we live for. We live when they're standing firm, walking the Lord. No matter what suffering it is, it's worth it. It's worth it. So based on this picture, home central, strategy simple, cost steep, reward great. Based on Acts, here's what I would say. Not, there's not specifics here. This is general, but this is what I would say. First, let's go everywhere. Church, walking out of the book of Acts, let's resolve to go everywhere, aggressively everywhere. To unreached areas overseas, East Asia, North Africa, Central Asia, let's go. Underreached areas in North America, Seattle, New York, Midwest, let's go. And throughout Metro Birmingham, for that matter, there's people all throughout this city. We want to see thousands of people come to know Christ in this city. So let's, let's go everywhere. And let's involve everyone. This, here's something to think about. You read the book of Acts like we have. I think you begin to realize that God has designed all of us to be a part of church planting. And all of us to be a part of church multiplication. It only makes sense, following your notes, if we are all involved in making disciples, if we're all doing that, we will necessarily, automatically, all be involved in multiplying churches. You think about it. If we are all making disciples, all of us, everybody in this room, the next year, two, three, making disciples, the Spirit of God, gospel of God, this gospel works. People come to Christ. We'll we'll, we'll double in a year or two or three if we're all making disciples. Maybe I'm underestimating. I don't know. Probably. If we're all doing that or been talking about, we'll, we'll double. And we, this building, as great as it is, will not be able to hold the people who are coming to Christ. That's good. That's good. That's what we're after. Maybe that's part of the reason they didn't have building here in Acts. Maybe, maybe it wasn't even just a stewardship of a resource issue. Maybe it was because buildings couldn't contain what was happening. That's what we want. We don't want to design something. We don't want to give ourselves to something that a building can contain. We don't want to give ourselves to something you can't stop. That's the whole picture here. And so, if we're all making disciples, if we're all doing this, the reality is we're not all going to be able to stay in the seats where we're at right now. This church is going to be spreading all over the city. That's what we want. So what if the goal of your Christian life, what if the goal of your Christian life is not to spend the next 30 years in this building Surrounded by these programs. What if the goal of your Christian life is not to spend the next five years in this building surrounded by these programs? What if the goal of your Christian life is to be a part of making disciples and multiplying churches and be a part of a spreading church? Less like a pool, more like a river that's going everywhere. And we're not just church planters or church planting residents, but we're all involved in the multiplication of the church. Let's, let's, God, give us the grace to die to our need for stuff and, and comforts and preferences and traditions. God, give us the grace to say, okay, well, after this journey, blank check. Lord, whatever you want us to do, we'll do it. Let's pray. Let's press in together and pray and say, God, what do you want us to do? How can we most effectively spread this gospel urgently in Birmingham and to the ends of the earth? Let's ask him, and let's ask him willing to do whatever he says. Bottom line, God is sovereign over the Great Commission. He will finish it. (laughs) He'll finish it. He's going to get it done. We are responsible for the Great Commission. He's entrusted it to us, to you and to me, us. So, So let's give him a blank check with our lives. All across this room, your life, your family. Blank check. No strings attached. To say on a daily basis, however you want to use me, lead me, my family, I'll go, I'll do whatever. Blank check. Let's give him a blank check with our church. Let's say in the days to come, We'll do whatever. No matter how crazy it might seem, we'll do whatever we want. More than we want breath. 
We want this gospel to spread through us. We'll do whatever. And let's lose our lives accomplishing this mission. Let's lose our lives accomplishing this mission. I, I don't know all that means, but this world evangelism is a divinely ordered goal for every Christian. Not only is it attainable, it is inevitable. Whether or not we believe it, someday the gospel of the kingdom will be heard to the ends of the earth. The God of the universe will not be defeated in his purpose. Any activity not in step with his design for human destiny is an exercise in futility. The sooner we realize this and align our way with his, the sooner we will be relevant to eternity. Oh, my life, we want our church to be relevant to eternity. Well, that's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacey Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.